This is Catherine Cruz. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. We've been talking about tourism this week. The forecast for the domestic visitor industry is steady, a steady increases throughout the year, but the international market isn't rebounding anytime soon, and that means hotels and resorts can't hire back workers as fast as some would like. Senator Brian Schatz has just introduced a measure to try and remedy that. The Save Hotel Jobs Act would help those properties not previously helped by earlier federal aid. Tens of thousands of jobs are at stake. We talked to the head of the American Hotel and Lodging Association, who is in town from Washington, D.C. this week. Here's Chip Rogers. You know, our industry has been hit worse, especially when you compare us to even other industries like airlines and restaurants. The unemployment rate in our industry still remains high. The number of employees who have been able to be brought back still remains lower than most other industries. And so, you know, 15 months of historic lack of revenue has caused a, a crisis situation that's not over yet in the hospitality industry and particularly hotels. So we're thankful to Senator Schatz for his leadership. This would help us to be able to provide direct assistance to hotel employees. Now, some hotels and resorts actually it worked out for them because maybe they might have had renovations planned during the shutdown. I think the Halikolani may still be uh, shuttered. But we're in this interesting time where here in Hawaii anyway, uh, people are starting to come back to the islands. People still perceive this area as, as very safe. And we're seeing the numbers rebound. Yeah, no question about it. You know, we're seeing that in other places, places like Florida and Arizona, where the pent-up demand that you mentioned is really back in full force. But then you have other places, you know, New York and Chicago, that are really dependent on international travel and large meetings and conventions, and they're not doing nearly as well as other places around the country. And then you have places like Hawaii that where there's enormous demand. Uh, there's still some restrictions, um, but it, it's coming back slowly and steadily. And you've had great leadership here. I mean, the, the, the local political leaders have done a really good job of keep, keeping the virus uh, case count low. And that provides confidence to travelers who want to come here that, that Hawaii remains probably the number one destination in the United States to visit. There are hiccups, though. We are in a situation where we have a shortage of rental cars. And we just talked to a hotelier on one of the neighbor islands on, Ka on uh, Kauai. You know, and they're trying to get the word out, like, don't wait till the last minute to book your cars because they're afraid that people will cancel their hotel rooms because they can't get a rental car, you know, when they uh, do finally arrive on the island. Yeah, and I think it highlights the fact that none of us have ever been through this before. And so whether it be private industry like ours or local governments or state governments, you know, we're all working to get back to what we all sense as normalcy. But as you rightly pointed out, there are always going to be hiccups, and rental cars is certainly a situation where you know the demand, much like for hotel rooms, just dropped off in a way that no one could have prepared for. And with a vehicle, you know those can easily be transported from one place to another. A hotel can't really be picked up and moved, and so now you have this demand coming back, and and there's a great need to get more vehicles back onto the islands to to help meet that demand. And what's the snapshot for the hotels bringing back workers? I know the unions here, you know, have been concerned. They were just worried that some employers were going to use it as a way to be able to cut their labor force. Well, look, hotels are always going to have workers when there is demand. And so as occupancy increases, you're going to have more workers come back. I think what's interesting about this particular recovery is that it's the food and beverage workforce that has been hurt most. And so some of the local restrictions on how many people can be inside of a restaurant or inside of any indoor facility are really what's holding back a lot of these large hotels from bringing back even more workers. I know I'm sitting at the Outrigger Hotel right here, and they have the demand. There's no question about it. So if they could put more people inside their food and beverage facilities, they could bring more workers back immediately. But then, you know, we were talking about a moment ago with the Safe Hotel Jobs Act. That, too, is what is going to be used, hopefully it'll pass, to be able to bring back workers where you otherwise might not have been able to. And we've seen with some of the relief recovery funds, you know, that there's some fine print attached and maybe some entities that thought they might be eligible, you know, when they read the fine print, they find out, you know, no, you don't qualify to apply. And obviously, as this uh, legislation works its way through, I mean, what are your priorities? How do you see the broadest category, you know, or opportunity to help the hotels that are hurting? Well, I really appreciate you asking that question because you're 100% right. Previous legislation that has passed has only addressed certain segments and certain hotels 
and therefore only certain workers were able to receive the benefits. The beauty of this particular legislation is that the only thing that is required is that you, the particular hotel, has had a specific amount of revenue loss when compared to 2019. Well, I think almost every hotel in Hawaii is going to meet that qualification. But other than that, that's it. And so all the money, these grants, has to go directly to worker compensation. So the idea would be that no one would get left behind. And and we think that's really important, that we're not picking and choosing winners and losers, that the government hasn't set up a scheme where some employees get it and other employees don't. We believe that if this passes, um, you'll have the ability to use those funds on all of your employees, no matter which hotel you're at. And I don't know how close you've been tracking or if you've been briefed on, you know, the situation with our legislative session. You know, they've just passed a bill that would allow the counties to set the hotel room tax, you know, on their own island. Any thoughts on that? Well, we're opposed to that. If there were ever worst time to create additional taxes, that time would be right now. You know, as the industry is trying to recover to layer on more taxes on top of it, which will inevitably happen um, if this plan is, is approved by the governor. That is not going to help the situation at all. And so we think that the old system seemed to work pretty well. We think the HTA was doing a pretty good job. Now, is is any organization perfect? Absolutely not. And if there are things that need to be changed to improve the performance, then let's focus on those. But for the state to keep the money and then layer on top of that additional taxation at the local level on top of it, we don't think that's a recipe for helping an industry that has been hurt so much over the last year and a half. And you're here in Hawaii. I know you've visited some of the neighbor islands, you know, as part of this safe stay initiative. But as the CDC is, you know, rolling out new information and new guidelines, we're finding that some of the sanitation efforts and all the hand sanitizer maybe isn't all that necessary. I mean, I don't know. How are you folks looking at that? (laughs) Well, I am really glad you asked that question. You know, what's interesting about this you know, we're often told everyone needs to follow the science, and that's exactly what we're doing uh, in conjunction with the CDC. And so, yes, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was a hyper-focus on cleaning surfaces and using hand sanitizer. And we're certainly not suggesting those aren't important because those do remain important. But what we've learned, along with everybody else, is the transmission of the disease is much more likely through the air. And so air quality has become really the primary concern of, of any indoor facility, maintaining space, Uh, The usage of masks indoors uh, remains at the top of the list of things to do. And so, you know, as the science evolves, we all understand more how the virus is transmitted. Our policies and guidelines evolve with them. So I think that you highlighted something really important, and that is just as society figures more about how to deal with this, this virus, we should change our behaviors to match that. It's funny because someone brought up a thing as we were reflecting on this past year that we had a situation with airline workers, flight attendants, who wanted to wear masks. And the airlines didn't want that because they were afraid that that would scare the passengers. And same thing with the hotel workers. You know, maybe the hotel workers wanted to wear masks and maybe the hoteliers were a little wary about that. But now the science shows that, yeah, it's airborne and, and a mask is recommended indoors. Yeah, and our workers are, are very happy that our industry came up with those standards because, you know, what we were seeing in other places, maybe not so much in Hawaii, was workers being put in the position of trying to referee disagreements between guests on who needed to wear a mask indoors and who didn't. And that's a very unfortunate position for a hotel worker to be in. And so, you know, our industry standard is if you're indoors, then you need to be wearing a mask. If you're outdoors, then you follow the guidelines. That's certainly a different situation. But that goes for guests and for hotel workers. And has your association taken a position on the vaccine passports? The first position we took was to make sure that we're encouraging all hotel workers to get vaccinated because we want guests to feel that safety and comfort. We're always a little concerned about anything that would be restrictive to travel. And so I think that we're still in the wait and see mode for that. But again, our focus right now is making sure that that workers get vaccinated. How the government shakes out with, with passports and things like that, if it's done properly, it would be something that, you know, there may be some support there. But We're not convinced of that yet, and so we still need to see how this works out. You know, our focus right now is are those workers really across the country, millions of workers who we want back so desperately um, to welcome our guests back. And and hopefully over the next few months, that's exactly what's going to happen. We've been listening to Chip Rogers, head of the American Lodging Hotel uh, Association. We talked to him just before he returned to Washington, D.C., after spending part of the week here in the islands.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Joyful Return, a museum-wide exhibition featuring a presentation of modern and contemporary highlights from the permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. Hey, this is Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, with a special invitation just for you. Join me on Saturday, May 8th at 10 a.m. for an HPR members-only event. I will reveal all the scandalous secrets of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That'll take about a minute, and we'll do a Q&A where I'll answer all of your burning questions. It's a virtual event, and I do hope to see you there on my screen. Don't wait, wait. Get your tickets today at hprtickets.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Here in Hawaii, statistics show that there were more than 7,000 reports of fraud last year, totaling more than $15 million. To help combat that, the, uh, the Secret Service and the State Office of Consumer Protection is teaming up with AARP Hawaii this weekend. Tomorrow it launches an anti-fraud campaign that will stretch out over the next two months. Here's Craig Gima. One of the reasons we looked at fraud was that the national, our national office, the National Fraud Watch Network, has launched a campaign to let people know that gift cards are just for gift cards. They're, they're thank yous, they're Christmas presents, they're birthday presents. They are not payment methods. And if anyone calls you on the phone or you see a, an email or you get something and they tell you, well, you, you know, we're from the IRS and you owe taxes and you're going you know, to lose your Social Security or you're gonna, your electricity is going to be cut off unless you pay right now and you need to go out and, and buy an electronic voucher or a gift card because they sometimes call these gift cards electronic vouchers, it's a scam. Gift cards are not payment methods for debts. <laughs> they are gifts. As soon as you hear that gift card or electronic voucher, hang up. It's a scam, 100%. We're going to kick off our campaign with what's called a telephone town hall. It's a phone forum. And what that means is we will call out to members and people who sign up, and you can join by phone. And, and the, good th the cool thing about that is our guests are Stephen Levins from the Office of Consumer Protection in the state and Michael G., the uh, U.S. Secret Service officer in Hawaii, and they will answer any question you like about any kind of, of scam. We'll, we'll start off talking about gift card scams because we really want to emphasize that that's a surefire fraud detection method. But it'll be open to questions because you're calling in. We'll put you in a queue, and if you want, you'll, you'll get a chance. Not everyone's going to be able to get their question answered, but we'll give you a chance to get your question answered. Well, we've um, certainly seen you know lots of... Uh fraud happening, particularly oh my during this pandemic, I mean, left and right. COVID fraud, IRS fraud, utility, the, the, I think the um, Hawaiian Electric just put another one, right, that there's people claiming that they're going to cut off your utilities unless you pay with a gift card. And then uh, a couple months ago, Honolulu Police put out a, a warning about, and this is sort of interesting, this is, this is, this is also a gift card scam. They, they sent an email out and said, you know, you've been selected to be a, a secret shopper or something like that. And all you have to do is go out and buy these gift cards and tell us about your consumer experience. And as part of that, you know, you show us the gift cards you bought and write up the numbers, and they send you a check. But it's a fake check. You deposit it. You have the money. But once you spend it on a gift card and you give the gift card number to the scammers, you're out your money. Don't fall for these things. You will be offering then an opportunity for folks to find out about different types of fraud over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, who's uh, next in the queue? The most exciting one we have is um, Brett Johnson. We've been trying to get him for, for, for uh, uh, several years now. Brett Johnson is the guy who tried who, if you've ever had your identity stolen or if your identity was bought and sold in the dark web, Brett Johnson may be the guy who did it. He's known as the godfather of the dark web. He was one of the he was one of America's most wanted. He was um, he was the one who set up really one of the first online stores where criminals can buy and sell credit cards, buy and sell personal information. So if people steal the information, they take it to Brett Johnson, and he would find a buyer for it. He served several years in prison, but now when he got out, 
he's 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 kind of like Frank Abagnale. He's he's now helping the Secret Service and other law enforcement catch criminals like he used to be. He teaches you how not to become a victim of identity theft. So you folks have been trying to get him here to Hawaii because of COVID. He can't come. But. He can't come, but he'll be here on a, on a webinar on Saturday, May 22nd. And again, ARP.org slash near you or the ARP Hawaii Facebook page and click on upcoming events and you can register to get a Zoom link. And we'll also put that one up on our Facebook page. Okay, so he's basically come over from the dark side. Yeah. Um, to talk about how it works. And he's going to give you the inside, you know, inside knowledge of how it works and what you can do protect, to protect yourself. What else do you have got going for June? Every Friday in June, we'll have a different fraud webinar, uh, talking about different things like Medicare fraud and, and other frauds. It's just a chance to really get educated to protect yourself and your family. Because to me, you, can't, you, never know too, you can never know too much about scammers because they, they're constantly coming up with new ways of taking your money, and you just always have to be on alert. And the people who think they know it all, those are the most like The people who think that they're never going to fall for any of this stuff, those are the most likely people, I think, to fall for frauds. That was Craig Gima, communications spokesman for AERP Hawaii, talking about a phone town hall event tomorrow. It's your chance to ask questions directly to the Secret Service and the state consumer protector about any scams you may be worried about. Look for links on our website. Honolulu Sybil Beats reality check today Look at looks at the cuts the University of Hawaii's budget is facing. Legislative reporter Blaze Lovell joins us today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Great to be back. Yeah, so uh, tell us about this. We understand uh, UH administrators aren't real happy. Right. So it appeared that you know, most of the state departments were able to avoid some major cuts because of the federal relief package that came into the state um, after Congress passed that in March. But uh, now University of Hawaii officials are pushing back against a lot of those budget cuts that were made to their budget. Uh, most state departments faced some general fund reductions. The general fund is where all our tax dollars go into, and it's what goes to fund many of these state agencies. Uh, senators tell me that most state agencies face between 6 and 7% cuts. Uh, UH is looking at a 10% uh, budget reduction overall. Uh, that's in a budget that where about $500 million or so you know, comes in from those general funds that I was just talking about. But the 10% cut isn't across you know, the board. It varies by campus. If you recall, UH is a 10-campus system. Uh, UH Manoa on Oahu is bearing the brunt of those cuts. Uh, their budget is being reduced by about 13%. Meanwhile, UH Hilo and West Oahu are seeing cuts of around 6%. And the community colleges so far uh, look the best off. They're only facing a budget reduction of about 3%. Yeah, I just got off the phone with uh, UH uh, Manoa, and I know they're uh, they're not happy because they're saying, you know, Manoa campus has seen uh, the enrollment go up and up and up, uh, and yet they're seeing their budget slashed and the community colleges get protected. Yes, and while enrollment might be going up there, I, I know within the past year there was some worry among UH officials that, y you know, a lot of the money, a lot of the tuition money colleges make comes from out-of-state students because out-of-state students have to pay uh, more than in-state students. Within the past year with the pandemic and, you know, people not wanting to fly, a lot of the enrollment numbers have been from uh, Hawaii residents who are paying resident tuition and less. So there's some worry that there's going to be less tuition money coming in. These cuts are also coming at a time where the University of Hawaii is trying to look internally at what it should be. You, you know, for the future, they talk about reimagining the university, right-sizing the university, and trying to pivot it to something that can help out Hawaii's economy coming out of this, you know, pandemic recession. The Board of Regents have asked UH officials to have a plan ready by this November to figure out how to do that. But we still have to wait and see, you know, what all of these budget cuts mean and if those, if 
those throw a wrench in those plans. Right. I mean, a lot of departments are scrambling to really analyze those budget sheets to see what specifically is going to end up on the floor. Yes, they are. And the governor has until June 21st to decide on that. And recall that the governor does have line item veto power when it comes to the budget so he can touch things up. He doesn't always, but that's within his authority. Another thing I want to point to is uh, that lawmakers have pointed out is that UH is expected to receive uh, quite a few millions of dollars worth of federal relief funds. Uh, Calvert Young, he's the UH budget chief, he told me yesterday uh, the university doesn't have uh, numbers from the feds on that yet, but by his calculations, the university could expect about $90 million uh, to be spent over the next year coming in from the feds. But there's a catch. Half of that money has to be used for direct student grants. So it's basically almost, you know, you're cutting checks out to students. The other half is what UH is analyzing. What can they spend on? Can they use it on the budget? Can they use it to cover salaries? Uh, it, it could be an amount that they that could cover the budget hole that was created by the legislature's cuts, but that's that's something they still have to figure out. Yeah, and I uh, was, you know, like I mentioned, was talking to UH, and they were kind of scratching their head over a project that was added in there uh, for a, a education center out in Wahiwa, which they didn't ask for, and they don't really know anything about. So I think they're still trying to figure that one out. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll be tracking all that. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. We have been talking to Blaze Level, uh, who is with uh, Honolulu Civil Beat. That's a reality ch- t- check today. To read his full story, visit civilbeat.org. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Helen Hong told us why she's going to wait till the pandemic is over to start dating again. I am so sick of, like, hitting on dudes who look really hot from the mask up, and then they pull the mask off, and it's like, yikes! I'm Peter Sagal. We'll never disappoint you that way because you can't see us. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radio Lab. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. Today we learn more about the Contemporary Music Ensemble at the University of Hawaii. It's a rather eclectic mix of music. HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us today to introduce us to this group of musicians. (laughs) Good morning, Noe. Exactly, Catherine. This is a super opportunity for me to take you someplace you might never have ever thought of going. Okay. Because, you know, you look at the whole world of music. Classical music itself is a subset. And basically, people think about it as music made with Western instruments, oboe, violin, piano. And in the whole realm of classical music, there's the Mozart crowd, there's the romantics, there's the people who like the thinkers, you know, Brahms, Beethoven. And there is a little tiny subset of contemporary classical people. This is known about contemporary classical music. It's made today using Western instruments, but people have been making music with those instruments for so long, they sort of wondering how else can we stretch this? And so other sounds are being invited into the classical music repertoire. And the whole idea is to perform music with living composers. And that's what the UH Contemporary Music Ensemble, led by Thomas Osborne, does. <laughs> they, they had a concert on Monday night, and I thought you might like to hear some of it. It's music that's made now, speaking about what's happening now. And this concert on Monday night featured this piece here by Tyler Valley. It's a new composition, and it kind of points out what we expect. 
expect music to sound like. manner and yes. then he starts to stretch it and that's that's what contemporary classical is kind of doing so now have you been going to these concerts for a long time mm, yeah for several years and you know often it's me and just a few people there but you know it's always a very avid crowd you know how you just know you're in the room with, with for example, public radio listeners. <laughs> yes. These are all people who, for example, know all about John Cage. Okay, his famous contemporary classical piece, 4 minutes, 33 seconds. All right, now, for this piece, any musicians were instructed not to play for the duration of 4 minutes and 33 seconds. So in this piece, what happens is the audience is totally taken aback, but... For that amount of time, they are really listening. And after a few seconds, you know, a minute goes by, people start really listening to each other. And, you know, things start happening. And that's kind of what this contemporary classical music is about. It does really depend a lot on performers. As you'll see in this piece here, um, a couple of shakuhachi duos that were written by Elizabeth Brown. Um, they're using classical instruments, classical Japanese instruments to create a feeling. You know, this strikes me as almost like improv. No, you're right. It feels that way. And, and that's kind of where your mind goes, you know. This is music that, that you're not following it. Uh, you're, you're, it's like encouragement for your mind to wander in a sense. It's people trying to find a way forward for classical music after World War II. You know, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And some people went on this intellectual approach, like, and um, they went into something called serialism, which involves a lot of repetition. It, it's composing based on modules. And um, there was some of that approach in the concert Monday night as well. And I wanted you to check out this piece here because it does bring together a lot of different influences um, and sensations. Like, listen for sensations. It's called Dancing Sanjo 2 by June Hey Lim, and it's a piece written for cello, piano, and gaiago, a Korean 12-string zither. Yeah, it does just kind of strike me as like classical improv, you know? It's really interesting. <laughs> experimental. Yeah. yeah, experimental. And you know what? When, when these things really hit, they are thrilling. A lot of this can go by and pe not. this is not everybody's cup of tea. But mm -hmm. the next time an opportunity to hear the UH Contemporary Music Ensemble comes up and you and a friend maybe are up for just something different, an evening where you want to spend, um, you want to listen in a different way. It's something you can check out. Well, I look forward to the day when we actually uh, can listen to the Contemporary Music Ensemble in person <laughs> and be there up exactly. close. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that helps. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Noe. Thanks. We've been talking to HPR's Noe Tanigawa. To find out more about the Contemporary Ensemble at the University of Hawaii, head to our website hawaiipublicradio.org.
public radio, there's a phenomenon called the driveway moment. It's when you're driving somewhere and you reach your destination, but you linger in the car just so you can catch the end of a great story. Well, with the HPR mobile app, you can pick up that story anytime you want, replay national shows as well as local news stories, and make driveway moments a thing of the past. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. My name is Greg. I'm from Paia. I want to give a shout-out to my favorite teacher for Teacher Appreciation Week, and that is going to be Mr. William Webb, who teaches 10th and 11th grade anatomy at Lahaina Luna High School. Hi, this is Alex calling in from Kalailoa. I want to give a shout-out to Mr. Saunerson, my 7th grade English teacher, who made me never, ever forget the importance of bringing my English composition and grammar notebooks to class after the first day when I showed up and made an excuse that it was at home on my hamster cage. So I want to thank you for holding high expectations and being there all the way through graduation. Aloha, this is Jesse from Kula, and I wanted to thank the entire Kula Cougar staff you guys have made one of the hardest years the easiest years. Thank you for your consistency, especially to the principal, Mrs. Tavares, and Mrs. Dixon, and the cafeteria lady, Ms. Linda. Really appreciate you. You are truly, you make community mean community. Thank you. Happy Teacher Appreciation Week, Ms. Tavares. My name is DJ. I'm calling from Mount Timidu, Hawaii on the Big Island. I'm a teacher myself, but I wanted to give a shout-out to a professor that I had at UH when I was a college of student there, Shannon Lowry. Shannon really taught me what it means to teach inclusively and to be appreciative of all students regardless of their background. She's really inspired me a lot. So, hello, Shannon. Love to hear those stories. Did you get a chance to show your gratitude to a teacher this week? There is still time left. Today is the last day of Teacher Appreciation Week, and we wanted to show our appreciation by turning the spotlight on a couple of longtime teachers who now serve their schools as leaders. Both were recognized nationally last week for their achievements. How were they able to achieve their success? What role did the teachers play in each school's improvements? That's what the conversations Russell Subiono sets out to find when he spoke, spoke with them. Nanakuli Elementary's principal Lisa Ann Higa was honored last week as Hawaii's 2021 National Distinguished Principal. She's been in the job for the last seven years. Among the improvements during her time, according to the Hawaii Department of Education, an increase in third grade literacy from 8% to 71%, and improved math proficiency, rising from 2% to 45%. To understand how the school got there, I asked Higa about her vision for the school when she started. You know, I can remember in 2013, my first faculty meeting with my staff, and I put up this chart paper about my vision. And in the middle, like a little middle bubble, I just put a dynamic school of the future. And then the surrounding bubbles on this chart paper had little words like digital, innovation, energy, strength-based, opportunities, sustainable, uh, global thinkers. And what I did at that meeting, I think, kind of kicked it off where I had every grade level and department put up what they thought their vision was for Nanakuli Elementary, you know, and, and 
everybody did it. We all shared it. And till this day, all those chart papers are still up. And I think it's become a living document for not just me, but for the entire school because we have meetings in there. Yeah. Um, and it really sticks with you every time you walk into that room that you're constantly reminded of it. So I just took a chance and put something up and, and everything connected. Just the, the chart papers all connected to what so it became instead of my vision now, it really became a shared vision for all of us. Our school's actual vision is Oke Kahua Mamoa Mahopeke Kukulu, which is to build upon a strong foundation. And, you know, looking at where we started to where we are now, I, I'm just so grateful that the vision is, a, like I said, a living and live document, a, a thing that we continue to see, thrive for, and do. With the vision in place, Higa says the next steps were to take action, starting with piloting the first pre-kindergarten program in the Nanakuli Waianae complex. So when I first got there in 2013-14, I was, you know, really researching the data and, and noticed that our students were entering kindergarten two to three years behind. So it, it wasn't like we were even at the starting line for kindergarten. It was like you know, poor things, they were still tying their shoelaces or looking for their shoes or slippers to get to that starting line ready to go. So when it was so exciting, because when we found out we were selected as the pilot program, that really kicked off the foundation of moving forward and giving our students that leveling of the play, playing field that, hey, now we have this preschool a pre-K program and the professional development for those preschool teachers. What what we did is the professional development they got, we, we took it a step further and we really built that strong pre-K to second grade foundation. So the PD was always shared that came back and we have a very structured explicit curriculum for literacy in the early years. So what we really focused on the data and providing those individualized supports and strategies for both our students as well as our teachers. You know, our teachers also need that, that um, support and training. And yes, when you look at the data, when um, it, it, 2015, 16 was 8%. And really the goal really was to get the kindergarten students ready for a successful future in academic numeracy and literacy platforms. So I have been fortunate, or we have been fortunate. It's just a strong, strong pre-K to two programs and foundations that we just seek it because the research shows that by third grade, we're, we're gonna, we have our work cut out for us. So yes, from 8% to 71, I commend my staff, my teachers, the families, the students, you know, we're just driving them like, come on, we can do this, we're in this together. And it wasn't just the students who were impacted by the changes. Teachers became more invested. According to the DOE, since 2015, Nanakuli Elementary has seen a 10 percentage point increase in teacher retention. I asked Higa if the increase was because of the school's culture or because of its opportunities. I think it's both. I think we provide a lot of um, professional learning and leadership. I believe in all of them, that they are future leaders and they are currently our leaders in, in the school. Teachers, from teachers to custodians to office, I mean, to my support staff, it, it, we're all leaders and we all lead. I, I think when that whole thing came out about the retention, it's really my, one of the first questions I asked in, in my interviews is, do you want to be here? Because it, it's, it's not just hard work. You have to have that heart that drive, that passion to, to want to just be here. And, and I think that drives everything else in the interviews or the questions. It, it's just a unique and special place. And, and we're more um, of a smaller school, mm -hmm. size school. So it becomes really one family. So there is no lineage of, oh, you're the teacher, so you do the teacher work. You know, mm -hmm. oh, you're the uh, uh Custodian, so you do custodian work. I mean, there's been cases where we're short staffed sometimes, and 
you know, it's not a silo job. It's more, hey, I had an office uh, uh, personnel helping a student who needed a little bit of just talk story. You mm-hmm. know, she was having a hard day. So everyone just steps up to the plate. And I think that's what makes this school so unique that there is no real, there's a label for a position, but really the job is, is for everyone. Everyone helps each other out, you know. So we know that's the teacher, that's the educational assistant, but really if we have to cover for adult supervisor or cafeteria coverage, everyone just says, they raise their hand. Mm -hmm. What do you need? And we'll go do it. I I don't know how to say it. It, It's so touching, I guess, to people just step up. And I think people want to be here. They just really want to be here. Higa wasn't the only one honored last week. Maui Waena Intermediate's Marianne Wheeler was also named Hawaii's 2021 Outstanding Assistant Principal. She was a teacher for 18 years before moving into an administrative role. The DOE credits the 67% reduction in student misconduct at the school with the various programs and initiatives she established. But she sees it a little differently. The one thing we've, I've already talked to the teachers and everybody about is holding kids to high expectations. And so we kind of started down that um, path of our own improvement of having ex- high expectations of student behavior. Parents want high expectations for their kids. So you see something, you say something. So we really worked with changing the culture of our school first. And so we went from having, um, I guess our suspensions were reduced by 85% within four school years. So as we saw more kids in school, more time on tasks, we are finding more issues that needed to be addressed where kids were struggling in the classroom. And so we started looking at how to help support families and kids you know, be successful in school. And we think that because we changed the culture and climate of the school, that kids felt comfortable and families felt comfortable sharing with us situations they were having with their kids. I mean, we have, we have other students turning saying, hey, my friend's hurting themselves. So we had this change of culture where it's okay to tell us someone's going to help you and it's going to get better. And as long, you know, because we've changed that to we help kids, they do better. We tend to get more things that come up because kids are willing to share with us because they know that we're going to help them. What prompted this change in culture? Was it something that came from the top down or was it a collective thing? I think everybody has a, the same hope for a school, right? Everybody yeah. wants their child to go to school safe. We all want that. Um, we had two new vice principals. We came, uh, another vice principal, myself, came in together, and we really hit hard following the school rules and having expectations. So it was notifying parents that referral came in and got dealt with that day. Something happened, you see a student doing something wrong, you say something, you know, use appropriate language. It doesn't all have to be disciplinary. It's just addressing the little things. School uniform, you need to be in school uniform. You need to change, you know, here's what we do. So as we started to deal with the small little things, right, <laughs> the big things stop happening because the kid's like, wow, I get caught for this. I'm not going to try that. And so as the teacher started to see improving behavior, Parents would see the improving behavior on campus. You know, their kids are, you know, feel safe. So you kind of, you just get this momentum that keeps going that everybody's willing to, you know, step up and do their part. And so teachers made it easier for them to teach because the kids are behaving in class. Parents have less struggles with their, their students because they are happy they want to come to school. And they see us. We are, you know, we're visible. We're in the parking lot every morning. We're running the parking lot. I'm in the street. I'm directing traffic. So it starts off much smoother for everybody. Yeah. And then, and then life gets easier. So you take care of those things. You, you do that hard work up front, right? Yeah. And then you get the rewards of being able to do more and different and fun things with the kids because that's the expectation. Like, oh, this is how we are here. And it's funny because when people come from other schools and maybe a student has their cell phone out and then we just put our hand out and they give it to us. And they're like, how would you do that? And I go, that's the expectation. Yeah. They get it back at the end of the day. They want to argue with us. Mom and dad can come pick it up. Yeah. And so that's just how it is. And we try to, you know, you look at kids. You talk to kids. Don't let any kids slip through the cracks. Make contact. Make eye contact. Say something to them. And just be observant of what's going on. And that's the biggest thing. And then as everybody else, things get better, then more initiatives can come. They see more reason, like, oh, it was an easy day. Kids behave in class. I said, do you need to go see the vice principal? They're like, no, I don't want to go see her. (laughs) 
And, and so it's just more time in class, less kids out of school being suspended. Um, attendance, we start tracking attendance and calling parents, hey, your child's not here, what's going on? Attendance gets better. So it just, it just that's what the expectation is to come to the school. People want a GE, geographic exemption, to come to Maui Waina just because they hear good things. They hear it's safe, that kids are safe. Um, fights, it's rare, maybe a couple since I've been here after the first year. Uh, they just don't fight on campus. It's, you know, it's not allowed. And kids will tell us what's going on beforehand. And it's having a community that wants the best school we can have. Part of the reduction in Maui Waena's student misconduct is a result of additional training and resources for teachers, workshops on how to grade differently, improve curriculum and instructional practices, to reach all learners, and to be positive. Grace Dearborn came to our school and talked about how to dose, how to say something positive to kids or faculty or anybody, or show some, you know, like show what is good, what you want to see instead of being negative. You know, you can often say like, oh, I really like how this group's working together. And if you look around in middle school, all the kids look to see what that group's doing, and they'll do that instead of scolding the group like, hey, don't do that. If you try to look, focus on that positive behavior, Overall, the school climate goes along with that, and we try to see the positive in everybody and all the kids. And the more the positive is rewarded, the more you see it. It's contagious. Giving teachers the opportunity to grow is one way schools show their appreciation for the profession. And with Teacher Appreciation Week nearing its close, I asked the former teachers for their perspective on how the public can best appreciate teachers. Here's Wheeler. It doesn't have to be a gift. It doesn't have to be a luncheon or any, anything like that. It's more of when a parent or teacher calls home and talks to a parent that they will listen and support the teacher with their children. In the partnership with teachers and be responsive, that's the best thing they can do for everybody. Higa adds that a simple, kind gratitude statement like thank you goes a long way. Here's a poem she wanted to share with teachers in the spirit of Teacher Appreciation Week. To the many awesome teachers out there, continue what you've been doing with love and care. Empower and engage our future leaders. Remind them the importance of a lifelong reader. Embrace the memories of all those you inspired as your work never ends, even though you are tired. Refresh and rejuvenate as you must. Share pride and passion. Build a tree of trust. Our students need you even more today. Let's not forget, add into your lessons some laughter and play. So go forth and enjoy what you were destined to do. Teach your heart out, keep learning, and happy Teacher Appreciation Week, too. Enjoy the journey. That was Hawaii's 2021 National Distinguished Principal, Lisa Ann Higa, from Nanakuli Elementary, and 2021 National Outstanding Assistant Principal, Marianne Wheeler, from Maui Waena Intermediate. They were talking with R. Russell Subiono. Both teachers, uh, educators will be honored later this year at national conferences in Washington, D.C. and Chicago, respectively. Hi, this is Kelly McDonald from Honolulu. I wanted to talk about Teacher Appreciation Week. My teacher memories are two bookend teachers, my kindergarten teacher, Fran Moses, and my high school debate coach, Mike Burton. I count to 10 in five different languages, and I still remember how to do it to this day, 50 years later. And my high school debate coach taught me about the power of argument and ideas, being an advocate for the beliefs that you hold. I thank Fran Moses for helping open my mind to new and intercultural experiences, and I thank Mike for helping me find the voice to deliver it. Aloha, and thank you to all the teachers that help every student every day. Hey there, I'm Ted Banta calling from Big Island. just want to thank my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Beverly Mares, for playing all kinds of protest songs and songs from the folk music phase, early 60s, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Phil Oaks, and Pete Seeger. After lunchtime, she would have us all relax with the lights out, and she'd play her ukulele. Now, I learned a lot of songs, and it made me feel like maybe I could go into music. I always thought it was just I wasn't worthy or I wasn't capable of being a musician, but when I saw that, it really inspired me. So thank you, Mrs. Mares, and... Uh, her music still lives on with my students. I sing to my students now, too. So um, thanks a lot.
Oh, that's awesome. And it's not too late to thank your teacher. Here's some shout-out listeners sent in via email. Mahawi Nui Jean Nishimura, who is my fourth grade teacher at Manoa Elementary. You showed me compassion, kindness, and love. I learned so much from you and remember you to this day. Thank you for all you did as my teacher, Tiffany Ng. Aloha, my name is Catherine Liu, and I'm a current junior at McKinley High School who would like to give a shout-out to Mr. Loomis for working so hard to give us a fun and enriching learning experience during the pandemic. And Honoka'a native Donnie Da Silva, now a building contractor in Montana, he sends his appreciation to Parker Ranch carpenter Albert Matsuoka. And that is it for Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we talk rail, our most expensive public project ever. Call or talk back line and tell us what you think. Should it continue to on to Ala Moana, stop at Middle, or somewhere else downtown? Call us. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, who wants to thank Mr. Naj and Miss Kulf, who both who taught her how to ask questions, and Angela Alfreke, who taught her how to listen. Russell Subiono wants to thank Mr. Toyama and Mr. Rattle for deepening his love of English and writing, and to the Wagners for everything and their friendship till this day. Lillian Song, who adored her English teachers, Miss Lucille Miller and Miss Feli Sarah, who taught her to love language and structure, and also a big mahalo to Professor Rick Mills for his discipline guidance through college. And mahalo to my guitar teacher, uh, Takashi Koshi. <laughs> mahalo. The Becker Quiz, written for us by John DeMello. Theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.